Lord, we give you this time this morning to speak to our hearts in the way, any way you would so choose. We're each and every one of us walking a path of transformation at different parts of our journey, and you can meet us no matter where we are. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do a good work in us this day as we continue to look with as much as we know of our sin, turning from it to give as much as we know of ourselves to as much as we know of God. And Lord, that God would be big this day among us. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this week we'll be wrapping up our series on repentance. And as you may remember, over this whole Lenten season, we've been using J.I. Packer's definition, which I just prayed. Repentance is turning from as much as I know of I sin, my sin to give as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of God. And so we've spent the whole time looking at it, contemplating it, looking at our prevailing sins, throwing it at the cross. And last week we wrapped up with the looking at the example of the two sons that Jesus talks about in Matthew's Gospel. Because he had one son who said, yes, sir, I'll do whatever you want, sir, and he didn't go and do it. Then you had the other son who said, I will not. Yet he repented and did what the father asked. And Jesus said, who is the one who did the will of my father? That's the one who's right with me. (laughs) So we learned, as messed up as our lives may be at time, as we approach the Lord with true repentance, he always takes us back. He's glad to do so, and he's really good at doing so. But uh, it does beg the question, doesn't it? Really, wh- what does it really look like? I mean, wh- what do we have in Scripture that's an example of such repentance that I can hang my hat on and say, that's it. That's what I need to do to demonstrate such repentance following it more in a transformed life. Well, God gives it to us, and God describes it for us. So we're going to jump around a little bit today looking at different snapshots of what this type of life-transforming repentance looks like. And it's no secret. It's available to all of us if we'll only avail of ourselves to it. So if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about what worldly grief, worldly repentance looks like, and what godly grief, godly repentance looks like. In 2 Corinthians 7, as Carol read for us, we see it. And when you get to verse 10, he lays it out for us. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. All right, so that's what we're going to look at. What does worldly grief look like? And what does godly grief look like? Because... We don't want to go with worldly grief because that leads to death. Amen? Amen. All right, we want to go to godly grief that produces repentance that leads to life. So that's where we are today. So the first thing we're going to do is look at an example of worldly grief through someone we haven't seen, you know, throughout this series. And then we're going to look at godly grief. First, I encourage you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15, where we're going to look at King Saul. King Saul was the Clark Kent of Israel. He was 
tall, dark, handsome, and not that sharp a tool in the tool shed. All right? And he wasn't that sensitive to the Lord really whatsoever. And remember, the king of Israel was always commanded to administer the covenant of God among his people, not to play king. <laughs> and he got off into it really quickly. And so you get to chapter 15, God has given him some clear commands. He's already blown it a couple times up to this point, but he gets to the point where he just doesn't do what God asked him to do, and the prophet Samuel comes to him and rebukes him and says, don't you know that obedience is better than sacrifice? And here's how he responds to Samuel in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 15. Here's how King Saul repents. And here's how he shows for us what worldly grief looks like. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is, yeah, I know I'm wrong. I should have obeyed the Lord, and I didn't. I'm, gonna, I'm sorry for that. Now, let's go, and before all the people, let's show I've asked for forgiveness to among all the people as we worship the Lord together. See what I'm saying? It's all religion. It's all a show. And it has nothing to do with a person who has a relationship with the Lord. It doesn't impact his day-to-day -day life at all. And that's what a worldly grief looks like, ladies and gentlemen. And if you keep reading 1 Samuel, you'll realize it leads to death. And it leads to his death, quite frankly. But, you know, Paul also said there's a godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to eternal life. What does that look like? We're going to learn three great things from King David, Saul's replacement, that shows us how we can have such repentance and get on that transformed path. Because, you know, if there's a pattern in my life that I'm struggling with a particular sin and I keep sinning and sinning, I come back to the Lord Lord, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. You really haven't gotten it, have you? Really. You haven't gotten at the heart of what repentance is all about. But David here in Psalm 51, that Carol led us in, in the prayer of David, does more than any other thing. You might remember King David. He's the king of Israel. The greatest king, man after God's own heart. Stones Elijah, right? He is a stud. He's ruddy, he's handsome, he's, he's a brave warrior. But there's one beautiful spring day, he sends his troops out into the battlefield to fight his battles for him. When he should have been out at war, he's up on the rooftop of his palace, he looks down and he sees the beautiful Bathsheba. Summons her to the palace where he has an affair with her. And she conceives. So number one, he's committed adultery. Right? He conceives now. He concocts a plan for Uriah, her husband, to come back and sleep with her so that Uriah can think that it's his baby. Uriah won't do it. My men are out on the battlefield, O oh sovereign king. I can't live like that and take pleasures in being one with my wife. And David, rats. 
so I got I to gotta concoct some other plan. Just got to kill him. So later on the battlefield, when all he leads his troops in the battle, the, the troops fall back and Uriah gets killed in battle. And David concocted that battle plan. Well, the, the, the warriors just obeyed commands, but they knew something was up. And David now is not only guilty of adultery, he's guilty of murder, and he thinks he's getting away with it. But all of a sudden, the prophet Nathan comes to him and basically says, David, you're condemned. You're the one who's caused all this anguish. You're an adulterer and a murderer, and you need to repent. And Psalm 51 is written as a confession after being caught with Bathsheba. And what we learn in Psalm 51, so that we too can practically get on the path of the transformed life that we each and every one of us have been called to, is we learn, number one, we have a prayer and a request for illumination and knowledge. We see a desire for a relationship with God. And we see a great hope in God for the future in God. Okay? Those three things. Illumination and knowledge from God about our sin. Great uh, uh, desire for relationship with the living God and hope in God. So let's look at this, shall we? First, in the very beginning of the psalm, we begin to see that David has a, a knowledge of his sin. He recognizes it, where before he didn't. He was just suppressing it. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, light through Nathan has been illumined upon his sin, and David doesn't just say, Oh, I'm sorry, let's go show the people that I'm, that I'm forgiven. No, he says, Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your word and blameless in the way you've judged me. David has asked for light to be shown on it, and it has been, and he acknowledges it. And we see this throughout the scriptures in all repentant people. He says in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And see if there's any wicked way within me. It says in Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a lamp upon my path. Because as you pray those types of prayers, God reveals a little bit more of himself. You see a little bit more of yourself. And you see a little bit more of your sin. And when we see that, that's how we get in the right relationship and the walk with, transforming walk with God. But what do we do? Most Western people, you know, they might say they're Christian, but they, they treat the Lord and repentance and this whole subject like the scientist who studies fleas. There was a scientist who was studying fleas, put a flea in a Petri dish, all right? So he said, jump! Flea jumps, all right? <laughs> then he takes a leg off the flea and says, does it again. Jump! You know, flea jumps, a little hobbling this time, pulls another leg off, keeps doing that. Jump! Pulls the leg off, jump, pulls the leg off, jump. He's getting a little crippled at this stage of the game. Gets to the last leg. He's only got one leg left. Pulls the leg off the flea. And then he starts to yell at the flea again. Jump! Flea doesn't move. Jump! Flea still doesn't move. One last time, he goes, jump! 
flea doesn't move. So the scientist writes down in his journal, when you remove the legs from a flea, it loses its sense of hearing. So many of us treat the word of God and the promptings of the Holy Spirit just like that scientist. It's not his hearing that's broken. It's his legs that you pulled off. When God speaks clearly to us through his word, he means what he says. And just like the king Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. And notice what David says later. The sacrifices of God are a broken it's not that we can just come here and go through ritualism and be right with God. It, it comes with a heart posture back to God as my sin is acknowledged before him. Don't be like the scientists because godly grief produces a true repentance that says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there's any wicked way within me. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light upon my path. Not like Saul, but like David. Secondly, we see in David a desire for a relationship with God as he prays. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He wants to be in God's presence. And if you're in God's presence, you want to have a relationship with the one you're present with. So he's praying for a relationship. Did we hear anything like that in King Saul's confession? None. It was all religion. It was all show. On a cursory reading, unless you're really paying attention, it seems okay. But it's not. David is inviting the Lord into his life, in every aspect of his life, and is asking the Lord to walk through life with him. And it's a sign of a godly grief that leads to true repentance. A life that isn't filled with remorse. because re Saul was remorseful. Remorse always looks back. Repentance looks at the past and in the present, but it always looks forward to the possibilities of who I am in the Lord. Because it's desiring a personal relationship with the Lord. Immediately after the American Revolution, there was an Anglican minister. Now, you've got to understand, to be an American Anglican after the American Revolution was not a popular thing in America. We had just fought a war against Great Britain, and yet you're still dressed like the enemy. All right? That's the way it was viewed. And the culture believed in deism. God is out there somewhere, put the world in motion, and like the divine clockmaker, put it in motion and has had his hands off ever since. So you hear prayers written like, oh, ineffable one. Does that sound like a personal God to you? That's how many of our founding fathers prayed. Oh, ineffable one. There was the rector of Bruton Parish Church in Williamsburg named Devereux Jarrett. What a great name. Devereux Jarrett. 
church is empty. Churches didn't have rectors because if the rector preached the gospel in many of these places, the vestry just fired him, and there was no Anglican seminary to send them to anymore, and the Brits wouldn't take us. Okay? So the gospel seemed to be dimming and dimming in the Anglican world in America. But Devereux Jarrett had been touched by the gospel. And his vestry, half of them liked them, the other half didn't. And they wanted him fired, but they had no bishop they could send him to. Later there was one, but the point I'm making to you is, Devereux Jarrett saw the church crumbling, and he said, I'm going to do three things. I'm going to lift high the name of Jesus. I'm going to love God's people. I'm going to teach them to love the Lord and love one another. And during the week, I'm just going to go out into the countryside and preach the gospel. He was a Methodist. And so he went. He said, the world is my parish, just like John Wesley. And he started to hop on horseback, go into these villages in the Tidewater area of Virginia, and took people with him, and they just started to preach the gospel. And people came to faith. And so on Sunday mornings, they'd hop in their carriages, and they would come to Bruton Parish, which began to fill up. And all of a sudden, it spread all throughout the Tidewater of Virginia up into vestries and, and little churches in Virginia, all the way up into northern Virginia where I come from. It's a great story. Why? Because he believed he taught a personal relationship with God, not, oh, ineffable one. Because this is the God who is. My friends, not like Saul, like David, creating me. A clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Put you on that path. Because this is the personal God. Who knows you? Who knows what you've done? Good, bad, ugly. And calls you back into this relationship with him. And that's a godly repentance that leads to life. And finally, David shows us what hope in God. Because you notice later in the psalm, in verse 13, he starts to talk about his ministry. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then he turns to worship. He says, 18, Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. Because the people have broken and contrite hearts. Right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on the altar. It's an illustration of bringing a bull and slapping that sucker on the altar. <laughs> Sacrifice that. Because I have a broken and contrite heart. It's a beautiful picture of what hope that we have in God. We, my friends, can live lives of great hope. We will teach one another and others your ways, and we'll see sinners return to the Lord, because that's the hope we have in Him. He will do that. And we'll bring our sacrifices of a broken and contrite spirit. And Jesus always takes us back. I find one of the most painful memories during Holy Week 
is Judas. Judas walked for three years with Jesus, guys. Think about it. Think about your life. Maybe you've done something terrible. Something you can't get over. Something that maybe you lay in bed at night thinking it kind of keeps you up and, and you wake up in the morning. See, the story of Judas and of the Gospels tell us that when Judas betrayed Jesus, he saw that Jesus was condemned and was seized, and he was remorseful, and he threw back the 30 pieces of silver. You read that, and you go, well, it seems like he's pretty sorry. You know, that's pretty good, isn't it? But the reality is, it's only a worldly grief. Although Judas experienced great sadness and great remorse, it was very intense. It wasn't the type of repentance that led to life. He was thinking, I have betrayed the Son of God. There's no hope for me. I'm done. So he went out and hanged himself. Because it was a worldly grief, which ultimately leads to death. I want to propose to you that the greatest tragedy of Judas's life was not that he betrayed Jesus. Because if he had sought Jesus, the blood of Jesus would have forgiven him of sin. There could have been cleansing and hope and forgiveness for Judas. After all, there was for Peter, wasn't there? Did, did Peter not betray Jesus by his denial? But Judas followed the path of worldly grief without illumination, without a personal relationship with God, and without hope. Therefore, he gave away to despair. And I want to say, whoever is in our congregation this morning, maybe you're feeling some despair about your walk in Christ. And you become consumed by that one prevailing sin, or you're consumed by some sorrow, and the weight of it is heavy upon you, and you don't think there's any way out. I've got three questions for you. Number one, where are you going with this sorrow? Number two, how sorry do you think you have to be? And three, what are you accomplishing with this pattern of beating yourself up continually? Hear me. Being intensely sorry will not cleanse you. What does cleanse is the trust in the blood of our Savior, which we just read about a half hour ago. When you place your trust in Jesus' work upon the cross alone for your salvation and your current life and your current sin, he totally cleanses. And my friends, it's Mr. Clean times 10. All right? It's so well captured for us in the hymn by Augustus Toplady. What a name, you know? Augustus Toplady. His mom gave him the middle name Montague. Yeah, I feel sorry for him. <laughs> but he wrote, he was a godly guy, and he wrote Rock of Ages. We're going to sing it later on. Listen to these words. We sing our theology. We do. We sing it. Pay attention to the words, because we choose them very carefully. Y did you know the average American has the, the attention span less than a goldfish today? It's true. Yeah. It's because of these things. 
We, we're on screens no matter where we go, and we can't focus. We can't concentrate. I beg you, listen to these words that we're going to sing later on and all our music that we choose because it's purposeful and it's deep. He says, could my zeal no respite no? In other words, my zeal for you, O Lord. I'm working hard at this Christian thing. I'm working hard at being a, a good person. Forgive me of my sins. Could, could, it, could, could my zeal no respite no? He asks. Could my tears forever flow? Could I beat my breast and quote Psalm 22.6? I'm a worm and no man. I'm a worm and no man. And just keep going with that. He says, all for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. You see, the intensity of our sorrow and the length of our sorrow cannot cleanse us. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses. And that's why Top Lady continues, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked I come to you for dress, and helpless I come to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Isn't it great? They don't write them like that anymore. It's just rich. Wash me, Savior, or I die. It's just a total dependence upon the Lord. That's the posture David had that Saul didn't. And that's the hope we have, because it's been done. It's only in the blood of Jesus, don't you see? And he delights to do that. It's exactly what Peter did, and Judas didn't. It's exactly what David did, that Saul didn't. That as the sin was seen and illuminated by the Lord to him, he recognized it, owned it, went back to the personal relationship with the Lord that the Lord desires and that we truly should desire. And recognizing the hope that the world offers doesn't even come close to this. And recognizes Restore to me the joy of my salvation. We began this series reminding ourselves that our Jesus said that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Repentance is a positive thing. And we're going to be walking this throughout this week. Individually. Corporately. Perhaps there's things in our history that we really have never dealt with. Because we're in a spiritual battle. Okay? This is a spiritual battle that we're in. So Monday, Thursday, we'll be talking about those things as we approach the Last Supper. And Good Friday, own those things as we nail our individual sins and our corporate sins to the cross of Christ so that we can come to Resurrection Sunday as resurrected people. That's why we do this thing. Because the reality is we have a God who is holy and just and yet merciful and perfect and loving. But that I, as I as a sinner must procure this for myself and recognize he lived the life that I couldn't live and he died the death I couldn't die for myself that I don't deserve for him to die. And yet he did that for me. He did that for you.
And he calls each and every one of us into this relationship through the transforming path of repentance where there's more joy in heaven than anything we could ever do. I invite you to join me on it. It's a really nice path. It's one full of great joy and hope and freedom and assurance. The world can't copy it. Can't even come close. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that through David we can recognize what true repentance looks like. And we ask that you would light our path so we can know our transgressions, recognizing that our sin is ever before us and hop on it. We want to know you, have this relationship with you as you create in us clean hearts. Not merely just believe in you, but wholly trust in your finished work upon us. And because of that, we have great hope, O oh Lord, as you open our lips and our mouths will declare your praise in this community. And we will see you build up the walls of your true church as we offer up a sacrifice of praise now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.